Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with James Forrester about Sacred Treason, book one of the Clarenceau trilogy set in Elizabethan England. The other two books in the series, which we mention in passing, are The Roots of Betrayal and The Final Sacrament, which has just been released. James Forrester is the pen name of Ian Mortimer, author of The Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England, The Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England, a Medieval Intrigue, Decoding Royal Conspiracies, among other works. You will hear me refer to him as Ian during the interview. He is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and winner of the Society's Alexander Prize in 2004. His years of research into Tudor and pre-Tudor England and into conspiracies against the throne give his novels a particular richness and depth. His fiction series follows the adventures of William Harley, Clarence the King of Arms, a royal herald, a gentleman. Sacred Treason opens in December 1563, five years after Elizabeth's accession to the throne. The reverberations of Henry VIII's decision to break with Rome and establish a separate Protestant church in England are still being felt. Although the persecutions of Mary Tudor's reign have ceased, the future for Catholics like Harley remains uncertain. Conspiracies thrive in this atmosphere, and Forrester dumps us immediately into a plot in the midst of unraveling. Tuesday, December 7th, 1563. It was a cold day for a killing. The Scotsman, Robert Urquhart, rubbed his hands and breathed on them as he waited in Threadneedle Street in London. Watching the door to Merchant Taylor's Hall, he clutched each finger in turn, trying to keep them supple, his grip strong. He cursed the grey December skies. Only when two men appeared at the top of the steps, walking very slowly and deep in conversation, did he forget the chill in his bones. His victim, William Draper, was the one on the left, the jeweled gold collar gave him away. He studied Draper, narrow face, gray hair and beard, about sixty, not tall but well-dressed in an expensive green velvet doublet with lace ruff and cuffs, eyes like a fox. He looked selfish, judgmental, even a little bitter. You could see how he had made his money, with an ambition as cold and biting as this weather and with as little remorse. Urquhart watched Draper pull his cloak close and wait, standing on the bottom step above the frozen mud. The man continued talking to his less well-dressed companion. The carts and pedestrian traffic of the street passed in front of them, the snorting of the horses and the driver's breath billowing in the cold morning air. It could not be done here. Urquhart could see that. Not without risking his own arrest. That would be as bad as failure. Worse, for he knew her ladyship's identity. They would torture that information out of him. Arrest would simply require her ladyship to send another man to kill him as well as Draper. He walked to the end of the street and looked back casually. A servant led a chestnut palfrey around the corner from the yard and held it steady, offering the reins to Draper, who mounted from the bottom step with surprising agility. Draper offered some final words to his companion from the saddle, then gestured goodbye with a wave of his hand and moved off. Westward, he was going home. Urquhart started forward, walking briskly. 
he felt for the knife in his belt, the dagger in his shirt sleeve, and the rounded butt of the long-barreled German wheel-lock pistol inside the left breast of his doublet. He hoped he would not have to use it. The noise would bring all London running. And now, please join me in welcoming James Forrester. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, oh, how are you? Thank you very much for asking me. I, I'm fine. Thank you very much for asking me. Uh, it's great to be on the phone with you. Um, do start by telling us about yourself. Well, that's always a very difficult question to start with, isn't it? Because how do you start describing yourself? You're so much in yourself that it's very difficult to find this point at which to begin. Um, I have probably got to say that I've always been interested in history and it's the history that is the predominant sort of force through all the intellectual endeavours of my life. So um, I have to begin with um, uh, childhood growing up around historical objects and stories about this family that um, you know, we, we had a sense of family history that went back 200 years. So when somebody sold or bought some land in 1817, that was us. That's we did that. So I've had this sense of sort of very long-term families and uh, a, a present going back into the past, which is quite unusual, I think. Um, I also have this name, Mortimer. Uh, now, if you're not a medieval historian, you probably don't really think very much about the name Mortimer, but uh, if you know anything about English medieval history, you'll know that for 200 years, the Mortimers were pretty much uh, on the verges of taking the throne or putting somebody else on it. So it immediately wraps you up in the debates and the fights of the past. So right from early childhood, I was sort of doomed, as it were, to be uh, a medievalist, a historian, and just passionate about the past. And do you want me to carry on along those veins? Because I can carry on talking about that line of things for a long time to come. Um, are uh, you actually related to Roger Mortimer? Uh, I'm not in the sense of being a Mortimer, but we all are, well, everybody of English descent is, because he had eight daughters, and uh, one of those daughters had something like 15 or 16 children. And so by 1500, he had as many descendants as Edward III did. Ah. And that makes them pretty much a common ancestor of the English people now. When, when aristocrats spread their seed, as it were, so widely, um, then, then, then the genes very quickly uh, become suffused within the, the population. Um, you can't say the same about uh, a 14th century uh, Cornish tin miner, for example, because, of course, the, the genes remain concentrated in his uh, um, uh, working environment. But for aristocrats who travelled around England, uh, from the 14th century, or in the 14th century, you can look at them now being as a, a, a common ancestors of the English people. Now, the, the most famous person I'm, to whom I'm related, uh, who's called Mortimer, is my aunt Angela, who uh, won Wimbledon in 1961 and was uh, number one world tennis player in, uh, in that year. So, I've grown up with the idea of excellence part of the family, but um, I can't claim to be descended from Roger Mortimer in the male line. No. And where did you grow up? Uh, I suppose I, I went to boarding school in South England. Um, I, I grew up in south of London before that. Family's from Devonshire, which is where I got back to as soon as I could make the decision for myself. Families lived in Devonshire in southwest England, uh, in or around Dartmoor for hundreds of years, and that's where I really wanted to be. So uh, as soon as I could, uh, as soon as I did my first degree, um, I came back down to, to Devon to, to live. And it's a fantastic environment. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And you trained as a historian, and were you? Uh, and you taught at various places. I think from myself on your website. Yeah, I I, uh, I did a first degree in history, and then I qualified as an archivist, 
which is terrific because it gives you direct access to all the original material. Uh, and you get so many stories, so many voices from that experience of having that direct connection with archives. But if you're an archivist and you're passionate about history, it is a bit like being an aspiring Grand Prix driver and being forced to work in a pit crew. Um, you're never actually getting the glory yourself. You're always preparing the documents for the historian to use. Uh, like a pit crew member is always uh, uh, preparing the, the, the race car for the, the driver to, 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 get to win all the glory. So I always felt that I wanted to get out there and sort of use these documents, and so I had to shift towards history. I worked at the University of Reading for a, for a year. I worked at the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts for five years. Uh, University of Exeter, I worked in for a year. Um, I did a PhD in medical history, um, an MA in archive studies, and then a DLIT in, in history uh, in general. So I've, I've got all the qualifications you could possibly have, far more than probably is necessary. And uh, I, I just, yeah, really, really wanted to sort of prove myself, but also exploit all the opportunities open to me. So through history and archives, I feel I got, got into a good position, really. How did you come from there to writing historical fiction? Um, I've always been intrigued by the idea about writing about time generally. It's not just history in the sense of being about the past. I mean, if you are interested in humanity, interested in people, then you ought to be interested in people over large swathes of time because at any present moment, it's a very superficial view you get of mankind – if you really want to know how much we can suffer, you need to look back to past centuries or, or the last war or, or something like that to realise how, how capable mankind is in the face of adversity. So I think if you're interested in people, you want to write about people over the course of time and the ways they're tested. And because of that, I've also been interested in the ways that mankind will have a future and writing about mankind in the future. So there's always been a bit of this sort of imaginative element of using history to, to, to uh, tell stories which reveal greater truths about mankind. And I think that really is the essence of historical fiction. Yes, you can do it in history, but you can also do it probably a little more easily in, uh, uh, in fiction. So um, I've always had this awareness. Um, for me, the, the, the catalyst was one day um, turning up to work, which was then the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts. So this would be the 1990s. I turned up to work one day and there was a letter sitting on my chair from the, or what became the Oxford Dictionary National Biography asking me to write the entry for, amongst other people, Henry Machen. And on the day I picked that letter up, I didn't really know who Henry Machen was. Um, he was uh, probably the earliest English diarist. Uh, and I went to sort of some lengths really to discover more about him. And in the course of that research, I came across a reference to the Knights of the Round Table, which was a sort of a secret society that he was part of in London. And really, because I knew nothing about the Knights of the Round Table, I simply started exploring what they might have been, how they might have met. And, of course, you allow your imagination to, to, to take that story a little bit further. So it really was growing in my mind for a long time, ever since discovering that reference in a 16th century manuscript to uh, the Knights of the Round Table. That's where it all started. Um, that's great. I mean, I loved uh, both, all three of your books. I, I, they Thank sent you. me the uh, Sacred Trees and so I could pre prepare for the interview, and I was so caught up in the story that I immediately went out and bought books two and three. And oh, so I've spent you. the last two weeks uh, reading um, 
the whole the whole trilogy. And when I got to the end of, of The Roots of Betrayal, which is book two, I found this fascinating uh, comment. I always read the historical notes because as a historian, <laughs> I love that part. Yes. <laughs> and also, I love it when they're at the end, because when I go to an end of a book that I really like, I don't want to give it up, you know. And so yeah. I want to read as much as I can um, about how it came to be and all of this kind of thing. And so I was reading the, the historical note at the back and um, I saw the, this comment, which seems to be the perfect shift, especially since you just brought up Henry Machen, which is um, the, you, you use a pseudonym to write your fiction in part because you feel that, um, well, you explain to me why, why you use it and how it feeds into the notion of historical accuracy. Um, which then I'll pick up again with Henry Machen and we'll move into the story itself. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the, the question of Harris, historical accuracy is an immense subject and uh, we could be here all night talking about that. Um, the the, the um, James Forrester element. James Forrester is actually my middle names and uh, when I was baptised, I was baptised Ian James Forrester Mortimer as if the Ian James are um, uh, hyphenated. And in fact, my godmother still writes to me as Ian James with a hyphenated name. So it, it's always been natural for me to sort of think of myself in both ways. But the reason for using um, a different name was um, really a sensitivity to my historical readership. Uh, in the first and second books I wrote, I had to deal with, the, uh, which were about English politics, I had to deal with the problem of the death of the second. Now, there is a lot of evidence that Edward II didn't die in Berkeley Castle, as everybody says, in 1327. And I pursued this. And when everybody started trying to sort of argue against me, and they had very shallow arguments, I thought, right, I'm going to make a serious st study of this. And, uh, and eventually my um, essay, which, uh, well, article, which proves that our reasons for believing Edward II died in Berkeley Castle are based on a falsehood. That's beyond doubt. That was published in the English Historical Review, which is, as you know, the leading uh, journal for academic studies in medieval, uh, in the medieval um, subject area uh, throughout the world. And that really caused a debate. It led me also to start thinking about how do you prove matters of the past? Because if I can say I can prove that the reasons for believing something are false then we are starting to be able to prove some aspects of the past. And all historians really are challenged by this subject of how do you prove the past? To what extent can you prove the past? And can you prove anything about the past which is actually worth knowing? And here, there was a, an opportunity to take it much further. Now, if you have spent, oh, I don't know, by then, um, five years, six years, claiming that you can prove aspects of the past the very last thing you want to do, go and do is publish a book in which you're making it all up. And what's more, I knew I was going to say in the author's notes that I would be inventing aspects of the past. So I wanted to make a very clear distinction between the academic hat under which I was prepared to say, I can prove something, or I'm not going to say you can prove this, but you can say this for certain or whatever. Uh, and then this other persona under which I was going to say, it's not the facts that matter. It's, it's the sense of understanding humanity over time that matters. It's fiction. I'm going to make up facts. I'm going to put words into characters' mouths who never said those things. And I'm actually going to spin you a story, which really tells you something about my understanding of the past, a far broader, more general way. And I never wanted to confuse those two. 
So um, that's the reason for a, a, a second name. And I, I'm very happy I went that way as well. I think I could have uh, created a lot of trouble for myself if I'd uh, simply done everything as Ian Mortimer. Um, so that's the reason for it. When you're coming on now to historical accuracy, well, what are you accurate to? Um, in terms of loyalty to detail, loyalty to the past, what elements of the past are you being loyal to when you're aiming to be accurate? Because um, there are so many subjects where we don't have the evidence. We simply don't have the means to be accurate, but we know they actually happened. For anybody who's been to the the catacombs in Paris, which are um, the tunnels basically their quarries, deep underground, deep under Paris, which were filled with all the bones from the cemeteries when they were all taken out in the 1780s. And so it's estimated you have about 6 million people down there, all their bones laid out, all their skulls arranged, fantastic patterns. And you could never put any of those skeletons back together again. They're just... It, it, it's, it, it's like human salami, except it's all made of bone. Um, it's such a mixture. There's no way you can make any truth out of it at all. And yet it is all at the same time true. It is all the, 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 the residue of these people from the past. So you have this problem between the, the, the reality and your inability to get into that truth of that reality. So you have to start writing fiction in order to say anything about these people. And so many elements to the past, the, 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 the romantic inclinations which we want to sort of tease out um, the, the fears. We, we need to get at our way of understanding them through storytelling, through fiction. And in fact, you can't really get to the truth until you start inventing things. There's this strange sort of um, paradox in historical fiction, which I'm sure you've come across yourself. In order to say something meaningful and true, you have to invent some things. You have to lie. So the whole spectrum of historical accuracy is a, a, a fascinating and compelling subject. And it isn't as simple as just saying, ah, oh, but that's not there in the historical evidence. It's much more complicated than that. I think that's fascinating. Let's talk specifically about the Chronicle of Henry Machen, where, which yeah. got you started on this, because you, I would think it's fair to say that you completely repurpose it from its original form. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so um, you told us how you got into it. Uh, tell us about the Chronicle itself and about Henry well, Machen. Well, Henry Machen, um, he was a Londoner. He was a self-made man. He came in from, uh, uh, he probably was born in northeast Leicestershire. And with his brother, he went to London probably in about 1520s to seek their fortune in true Dick Whittington Dick style. But um, both became merchant tailors. They were trading in cloth. Um, Henry Machen um, had a sideline in, uh, side in preparing the the, the, uh, the, the, the cloths for funerals. So he acted as a sort of undertaker for the wealthy in London as well. He was reasonably pro prosperous. Him and his brother managed to save up enough money and purchased um, a series of houses which they could have the rent from. So they, they weren't poor. They, they made good in London. And Henry in 1550, when he was either 53 or 51, he... he, he dated his birthday according to the Wednesday after Whitson. So it changed according to whichever, when Easter fell each year. And uh, he also got the year wrong in a number of cases. So he, we're not actually sure exactly how old he was, but he was about 51, 53. When his brother died in 1550, and he started writing this, uh, what he thought was a chronicle. In fact, he refers to it as a chronicle in his uh, will. And 
in that, he, he hadn't really got a very good idea what a chronicle was, and he certainly had no idea about historical style. No one had ever really told him how to spell, because uh, he was self-taught, as I say. Uh, and therefore, he produced the most remarkable document. Um, if, if you took somebody no, with no head, historical education, you gave them a, um, a, a, a two-minute spiel about what a chronicle was and then left them to write one for the next 13 years, this is what you would end up with. Um, not even the lines go in the right direction. It's all over the place. Um, but it is amazing because it is so natural in the way he chose things he wanted to include, which were important, and his slight sense of um, grandioseness in the way that he refers to himself in the third person as if he's one of these important people in London who uh, needs to be mentioned in any chronicle. Um, and so it's a strange mix of public events, things he's observed, uh, and that, that, of course, is sort of great men doing processions through London or the Queen's uh, making their processions through London. And it's also things like um, uh, characters who got caught for fornicating, being humiliated in public and dragged through the streets on a hurdle or, or something like that. Um, so it, it's full, full of uh, everyday detail and some of it quite horrific by our standards. So it, it's a real window on a different world. Now, this manuscript was partly copied by um, a historian of London, Stripe, um, in, um, uh, I think it's like, it's in 1600s. And uh, then it was um, in the Ashburnham House Fire of uh, 1720s. I can't remember the exact date of that, but it's about 1721. And it was on fire when somebody seized it and threw it out of the window, um, along with several other things. So it's entirely burnt around the edges. So you only have the central bit of every page. And you have to try and work out what was said by comparing it with some of the transcripts in Stripe um, and also the, the, the sense of things. Uh, now, there is a, a, an American academic who has now made it freely available in um, visual format. You can look at the original, which is now in the British Library, and you can look at the transcript and, and a simplified uh, transcript of uh, um, the Chronicle um, online. It's freely available. Uh, there's a link. I, 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 can tell, I can't remember off the top of my head where the link is from, but I can, if you just hang on half a second, I will find it. Um, because I link it from my own um, reference website page. It's uh, University of Michigan, um, a London Provisioners Chronicle, 1550 to 1563. And it was edited by Richard Bailey. Uh, so you can look at it for yourself. But it is full of detail, and it is one of the most vivid uh, records of the 16th century I've ever come across. So that's, that's it. But then, of course, I put Henry Machen into a plot. And so I do wholly repurpose the document, as you put it, uh, because I make this document um, the container for a political secret which really uh, could have existed and would have had the power um, to get people very agitated about getting Queen Elizabeth I off the throne and restoring Catholicism. So it was um, a great vehicle for me to use. Uh, I quite occasionally quote from the actual document, and uh, when I do quote from the document and make something up, I make sure it's an entry that there isn't in the original. So you can't be confused uh, as to historical reality and historical um, uh, invention. So it, it's really become a vehicle uh, uh, rather than a record of the time. Though I do try and reflect um, um, Machen's own world and the, uh, in, in the way I express it, uh, express passages from it. 
Um, I, there, one of the things that is I particularly love uh, in your books, in part because I'm a historian, but in part because you just do it so well, is the depth of historical detail. Um, independently of accuracy, maybe we should call it historical plausibility or something like that. Yep. The uh, the real I had a real sense that I was living in Elizabethan England, and uh, you know the, the at the at the very opening of the book, which I will have read part of uh, in the introduction by the time people hear this, there um, there's a prologue. But then we meet your main character, William Harley, um, Clarence King of Arms, and he is sitting in his study. And from that very beginning, there's a sense, you know, you can feel the rain pouring down, you get a sense of him in his study with the candlelight and so on and so forth. And I want to get back to that question later, but for the moment, let's stay with the Chronicle because uh, as he is, as Clarence is sitting there in the study, Henry Machen appears at the doorstep. And actually what happens is Clarence is sitting there and someone starts pounding on the door. And this is a very, I think, important element of your story to bring out is that um, Harley is terrified. Um, yeah. And explain to us why he's terrified, and and then we'll introduce Henry Machen again, and we'll we'll bring the two of them together. Well, um, William Harley, his real name was William Harvey, the the, the, the Clarence so King of Arms, the Herald at the time, uh, to whom I'm, who on whom I'm basing this. Who really did know Henry Machen, who was a friend of his. Um, I've given him the name Harley so I can actually play around with the character a bit more. Um, he was clearly, like so many people who were um, involved in long traditions and things that had longevity, he was essentially a Catholic who didn't want, he didn't want anybody to go along and change his religion for him. Thank you very much. Uh, you see this a lot in the antiquaries writing the 16th century. If they were involved with um, families that had long histories of uh, looking after particular chantries or abbeys or something like that, they didn't want religion to change. It was they, they were comfortable with the Catholicism carrying on. So even for people like him, who had to be in London, right at the heart of Protestant you know, uh, revolutionary England in many ways, because the, the Protestant revolution was very much a revolution of uh, so much that had gone before, he's right there at the heart of it, and he doesn't want it to happen. And because everybody knows he doesn't want to it to happen, everybody can see he's going to be religiously conservative. He's under suspicion. Now, when Queen Elizabeth came back in in 1558, um, at the very end of the year, and as the Elizabethan settlement started in 1559, it is true that people weren't burnt for heresy unless they were Anabaptists, but houses were searched for seditious documents. There was a real worry that uh, people would um, uh, try and bring back uh, uh, Catholicism or resist the Protestant uh, settlement. So there, there's real tension in society because you couldn't separate religion and say, oh, that's just your own belief. Religion was imbued in every well, – it was there in every aspect of everybody's lives. The, the, the record-keeping was baptisms, marriages and burials, the, church, the state's means of controlling you, um, everybody required to go to church, everybody required to swear oaths. The religion underpinned so much of society. So if you were of the wrong religion from your monarch – then you were in a very difficult position. And for William Harley, as a herald, and remember that heralds are part of the royal household, technically speaking, he was under wrong religion, and 
he actually was meant to be serving his monarch. So he was under super, no, right in the firing line in every way. And he would have known, a, a, a man in this situation, that his uh, possessions could be searched at any moment, looking for seditious books. And because he's a herald, everybody knows he could read, knows that he could well be circulating these materials. Um, he could be searched and end up being... Uh, humiliated and perhaps even hanged uh, for treason because of his religion. That's why he's he's terrified. But even though he's terrified, he decides that um, if he sends the Queen's forces away, they will just come back. And so he does order his servant to open the door, and the door opens in the midst of this torrential rainstorm to reveal Henry Machen. Um, tell Tell us what happens next. Well, Henry Machen brings in uh, a manuscript, his manuscript, his chronicle, and he urges uh, William Harley, Clarence O'King of Arms, to look after it for him, because as a historian, he would want to look after this document. But then, after he has accepted this document, after he has unwillingly accepted this document, and after William Harley, uh, well, um, uh, Henry Machen has gone back out into the terrible night, uh, Harley realises, or Clarence, as I should be calling him, Clarence realises that uh, at the end of the document, um, Henry Machen has predicted his own death. And uh, he therefore has to do something about it. He he is agitated and he makes a decision to go after him. He then finds himself at the starting a chain reaction from which he can never withdraw. And it is a matter of his own conscience conscientiousness, I suppose, that he can never withdraw from this situation that drags him deeper and deeper into what is a plot that he himself doesn't understand. And, and so he, he knows he's got a seditious document. He can't do anything about it now. If he gets rid of it, people will still know that he's had it and will still believe that he's got it. So he ends up in this plot where he, he really can't escape from this one decision he's made. And he's not at ease with the idea that he might have a document which other um, Catholics would want to use to upset the realm because this man doesn't want to start a civil war. He might be Catholic, the Queen might be Protestant, but he doesn't want to use it to get rid of her because he, he's terrified of what will happen. There's a conscientious man who's got this historical document and he knows it's going to um, have ramifications. I mean, he doesn't actually know what it is about this document or the plot or, or any of the people concerned, which is so dangerous. All he knows is that it is extremely dangerous and it could cost him his life. He does come across as very conscientious and very um, self-motivated, I would say. I mean, once he's decided to do something, it's, he's, he's very stubborn about his own way of looking at things in a good way as well as sometimes in a way that gets him into trouble. Yeah, he, he, yeah his conscientiousness is not his friend. I mean, he, he, um, it, throughout all three books... Um, and probably in the third book, more than any other, it gets him into a lot of hot water. Uh, and ultimately, it is a sort of weakness. Um, but it's a weakness I find interesting because the things we pursue in life are are things that do obsess us. And that obsession isn't necessarily always healthy or the best thing we can do. But um, that is the way life is. That is the way that humanity is. And it's, it's such weaknesses and our, our foibles in these directions which make us interesting, I think. If we were all just going to do the best thing for ourselves every step of the way, and can be a very boring creature. <laughs> it would certainly make for a very boring fiction. <laughs> it would indeed, yeah. Um, I felt like rather adult when I realised this, but until I was reading your book, I didn't have 
a very clear sense of just how much religious dissent and dissatisfaction there was in Elizabethan England. You know, when I, I was actually a child in England for a while. Um, I grew up there until I was 11. And I, so I took history in school. And, you know, Elizabeth is sort of like... And uh, you take it's it's not quite as good as be, seeing the end of the Wars of the Roses, and you know now it's just one king mm. you have to worry about. But you do get this sort of tremendous sense of relief as a child that suddenly the back and forth with Catholicism and Protestantism is over, and you know the glorious <laughs> reign of Sir, <laughs> with yeah, Sir yeah. Francis Drake and all that is about to begin, and Shakespeare and. And yeah. everything seems to come in. And of course, what is very clear from your book and also from the Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England is that that's not, in fact, at all the case. No, no, no. That is, it's the way you find it represented in the media here all the time. I mean, I'm obviously speaking from England, so I'm very aware of the way that people present Elizabethan times. And having done a three-part uh, TV series for, based on my Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England earlier in the year, I've been talking an awful lot about this very, very point. The way that the media normally represents uh, the events of 1558 to 1559 uh, was as if somebody turned on a light and suddenly Catholicism gone, Protestantism here to stay. Um, and it, 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 it's such a, a disservice to the people who really racked their consciences up and down the country as to whether it was a good thing or a bad thing for us to become a Protestant nation. Um, and you've got to look at uh, things like by 1560. Uh, 1563, so four years after the Elizabethan settlement had made England a, a Protestant nation, you still had over half the JPs, the magistrates who are in, in charge of local justice up and down the country, refusing to accept the Queen as the, the supreme governor of the Church of England. So there is this real resistance for, for years. Um, and you, in some parts of England, never really accept. I mean, if you go to the southwest or you go to the further, further north, where Elizabeth, incidentally, never goes on her, you know, her progresses, she doesn't go to the north of England, she doesn't come to the southwest because she knows that Catholicism is still a burning issue in parts of the country like this. Um, so there is this myth of it being a sudden change. What is really interesting, though, is considering how reluctant people were to change in 1559 to 1563... After 1570, after the Pope um, makes it, uh, uh, he basically declares uh, Queen Elizabeth I a, um, a not uh, a heretic, no longer uh, able to be Queen of England, and makes it a duty of all Catholics to resist her. After that moment, it suddenly crumbles, so that every ten years you have some further legislation against the, the Catholics in England. And by the, the, the 1580s, 15, late 1580s, 1590s, you have sort of a, a sense that all that doubt has gone. And after the, the Spanish Armada is uh, defeated in 1588, there is this huge sense in which a Protestant nation can defeat a Catholic nation. Therefore, God may well approve of our being a Protestant. And that's the point at which the Age of Gloriana starts. The, the, all the... the, 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 the patriotic and nationalistic, very positive golden age stuff you read about uh, Queen Elizabeth's England really is most true for the period 1588 to 1603, her death. So the last 15 years of her 44-year reign. So it's uh, much more subtle than just turning on a light switch and we're all changing our religion now. Um, and, of course, depending on which sect you were, you could be persecuted for many years to come. Um, and the, the steadfast Catholics, of course, by 1593, weren't allowed to educate their children at the school. They weren't allowed to travel more than a certain distance from home without permit, written permission from a magistrate. They, um, oh, 
you name it, they weren't allowed to practice the law. Uh, it, there are a whole raft of restrictions on being a Catholic, and certainly weren't allowed to hear mass. Uh, so, um, you, you, it was it was a real pressure on the, the religious minorities for for many years. Yeah, and I suppose I mean you're right. It is more amazing that it changed so fast, really. I mean, people are playing with their eternal salvation, and, and they deeply believe that. Yeah, I mean, because even if you make the right decision, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Even if you make the right decision and just go along with the, the faith of your ruler in order not to rock the boat, that still might imperil your eternal soul. So even if you're lucky on earth, it might lead to your eternal damnation in the afterworld. And, and that's very interesting because you can then see why people don't just play along and take the easy path. And of course, if you want to say, oh, this is religion, it's, I, I'm an atheist. Uh, well, to be an atheist in the 16th century is against God. To be an unbeliever, a nullifidians, then that's something t- totally different. And everybody hates atheists and nullifidians. So, I mean, the simplest and so straightforward thing is simply to accept your, your monarch's religion, but that might imperil your eternal soul. And that sense of threat, I think, is really a driving force. And sacred treason especially, it's, it's very clear uh, that, um, that Harley is getting dragged into this scheme against his will, in part because... Mm-hmm. The society doesn't really give him a way out. I mean, he's he's oh. he starts out by uh, one of the things that happens early on is is after Henry Machen has given him the chronicle and this code word in effect that makes him one of the knights of the Round Table, whom you yeah. mentioned earlier. He then Henry indeed was correct in predicting his own death. He is killed, mm-hmm. and then um, Harley yeah. gets called in. You know, he goes out to search for Henry, Henry and then makes him suspicious because you don't go out after curfew unless you've got something bad on your you mind. Said, yeah. <laughs> so on you certainly so don't go to that house and ask for that man at night mm-hmm. after curfew, yes. Um, quite. I mean, society does not let, give him a, a way out. But in, he wouldn't have taken one. I mean, the, all three books, the whole thing is really about one theme, and it's about loyalty. And that's loyalty in, in many different ways. I mean, it's loyalty uh, to, to Clarence's spouse. Um, it's also his loyalty to the state. Of course, he is a state employee through the royal household. But it's also his loyalty to himself and his religion. To what, to what extent is, are all these loyalties uh, coming into conflict? And they are in conflict. So, so which one, how do you remain loyal to all the things you value when all those things require you to move in different directions? Now, one of the reasons for setting it, the, 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 three, the trilogy in those particular years is because all these things are so important at that time. And if you were to set that in um, the, the, the 1960s, um, well, loyalty to the state, nowhere near as important as it was in the 1560s. Um, Oh, or even just just today. I mean, people uh, write the memoirs about their time in the, the the secret services now, and no one really bats an eyelid about it. Uh, so there's there's the sense of loyalty, which is very trivial now by comparison with the 16th century, when of course you could be hanged for any suspicion of treason. Loyalty to your spouse. Well, today people get divorced, people have affairs. It's it's not front page news. Of course, the the punishments for adulterers in uh, the 1560s London were to be tied behind, stripped half naked with you and your um, whoever was uh, the, the, the partner in the adultery, tied half naked behind a cart and whipped through the streets, publicly humiliated. They hadn't yet gone on to, to hanging adulterers, which they did in the 17th century, but it's a really serious crime. Um, and uh, loyalty to religion, well, 
and the reign of Mary, quite a number of people were burnt for heresy. So burnt alive. So you can see that there is this sense of drama attached to all these loyalties in the 1560s, which simply wouldn't be very dramatic in the, 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 the in 2013 or even in the 1960s. So it has all this loyalty is the main point of the whole thing and it's really dramatic in that backdrop and it's also dramatic because not only is it his own loyalty to these things the stakes are so high he isn't allowed to back out without the most serious repercussions yes and i um oh yes one of the things that you mentioned uh, just as you were talking just now which was also not really a surprise because I mean I have read books about Elizabethan England, but you tend to forget how much torture and you know really unpleasant punishments um, were typical of the time. I mean you're talking about people not only were um, heretics burned, but women were burned if they killed their husbands. Burned, yeah. Or, and that, yeah, a, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I, I just think it's one of the, when I was writing all three books because there is. Sexual violence against women in all three books, of one form or another, um, of a varying degree. And I was really worried about that, sort of writing that sort of thing in. I wanted to do it because society was so miso- well misogynistic, so prejudiced. Society itself wasn't misogynistic. It just had an enormous prejudice against women. So that a woman who killed her husband, yeah, she would be burnt at the stake. Um, a woman who killed her employer, likewise, would be burnt at the stake. I mean, remember, under Henry VIII, a woman who poisoned people could be boiled alive. Uh, so we have the most extraordinary punishments persecuting women um, uh, at a time when the, the, the far more humane on just hanging men. It was just fairly easy to get rid of the men. But there was this horror uh, attached to, to the, the, the crimes of women. Um, and I therefore, and I, I know a fair bit about the, the, the judicial side of things as well and the conditions of women in, in prison and the, the horrors that went on there. So I wanted to get across that society uh, as a whole was extremely violent and extremely violent, violent to women in particular. Uh, and I wanted to get that sense across. Though I, I, every step of the way I was writing those, those passages, I was thinking, oh my God, am I going to get something thrown at me here? But it does... Um... I mean, it does come across very clearly. I mean, in, particularly in the third book, um, where there is a kind of army of, of disadvantaged women. We won't go beyond that, I think. But but even in the first book, uh, when Henry Machen is killed, his widow is left. You know, it's not only that he is tortured and killed, but then she is completely dependent on him, and, and she becomes completely... Um, there's a potential for her to be completely dis- destitute because if his yeah. property is confiscated... Her needs are not considered by the state. Yeah, I had this first first realization many many years ago when I was um, doing my first archival job at Devon Record Office. So in 1990, um, I came across uh, a petition from a widow. Well, she didn't know she was, she was a widow or not. She lived in Dartmouth. <clears throat> she had, I think, three children, um, and her husband was a sailor. And this was, I think the date was 1626. And the woman's petition to the mayor was for some money of some sort because her husband had been taken prisoner, she believed, by corsairs. Barbary pirates used to come up to Devon Cornwall and steal the, the um, uh, normally the young people, but basically whoever they could get hold of, the white slave trade in, uh, in Morocco and Algeria. Um, and she didn't know whether he was alive or dead. She didn't know where he was. But she couldn't do anything about this. She couldn't really 
regard herself as a widow until she knew who was dead or alive. So she had no income. <clears throat> she had no property from which to, to sell to, to, to try and keep her going. The, the um, poor law obviously wasn't working very well for her. I mean, by that stage, there was a poor law which did sort of provide some sustenance so people on the whole didn't starve to death. But this petition just made me aware of how vulnerable the woman was in that situation. No income, no property, no protector. And uh, if you lost your friends who would vouch for your good name, you would end up being accused of all sorts of things. And, and it was that document that made me realize the, the, how precarious women's lives were um, in the early modern period. And Even though there was a woman on the throne. Yeah. I, I, I was just thinking it. So, uh, even though there's a woman on the throne, women's uh, lives at the bottom of society were just so precarious. I think that's a real. We, we forget that the women were not empowered by Queen Elizabeth being on the throne. Well, even Queen Elizabeth herself, I know from the Time Traveler's Guide, was um, to some extent disadvantaged by being a woman. She could do certain things, oh, yeah. but she couldn't do other things. She could be the head governor of the church, but she, or the governor of the church, supreme governor of the church, but she couldn't be the supreme head, head of the church yeah, for yeah. whatever reason, you know. Um, but also Henry's widow, Rebecca, uh, then creates another um, conflict for uh, Clarenceau because... His wife and children managed to get out of the house uh, before the after the initial incident with Henry Machen, but before uh, Sir Francis Walsingham's forces, which we'll get back to him in a second, but before they come in and search the house and destroy everything, looking yeah. for this chronicle. Um, so the wife and, and two daughters managed to get out, but then um, Henry's widow is, is um, left behind, and she and Clarence are, in effect, set off that that makes it a little bit more um, predetermined on their part than it was in reality. But at some point in the story, they do decide that they're stuck with this and they, they set out to solve the problem. And yep. so, and he's quite attracted to her. Yes, I wanted to bring in the idea of um, sexual loyalty as well, because the whole theme, of, as I say, the, the, the trilogy is loyalty uh, and the dangers of disloyalty, the drama of it, uh, and, which makes for a very intense existence. Uh, I wanted to bring in the sexual nature of loyalty too, um, because we all grow up through and go through life, and it isn't as simple as you know, turning on a light switch and that's it. You'll never actually look at another man or another woman again. Uh, and your circumstances do throw you together with people. So there is this question, uh, 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 and I want to bring out this sort of element of loyalty, which I, I think um, many men and many women in that situation would have gone the same way. I'm not going to actually say what happens because that will ruin part of the story, or ruin part of the story for two books if I actually tell you what happens. <laughs> but right. uh, uh, it, 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 it is an, an intense relationship, and I think most people in that situation with somebody they were they found agreeable and pleasing to the eye, they would find their relationship becoming intense like that. But of course, this again is a matter of your conscience um, coming up against your 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 animal instincts, perhaps. Um, so loyalty under pressure from many points of view, and uh, I, I wanted to bring this level of complexity to it. Uh, uh, but also because it was it, 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 useful for me and um, interesting for me to think how I would behave in such circumstances. Well, how far do you go down that line? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the fun of being a novelist is that you can play with all these possibilities <laughs> and live them out through someone else's lives. 
Absolutely, yes. I don't, I don't have to get my wife sort of bashing me over the head for going off with some uh, Rebecca Machen. I can do it in fiction. There you go. <laughs> Much better. So I'm going to co- turn back now um, a little bit to the uh, the idea of, of the historical detail, which makes it yeah. the whole story very real. But also, one of the things, when, I, when um, your publicist, Nicole Villeneuve, first approached me, I was kind of going, oh, Elizabeth in England, because I'm so tired of Tudors, you know. And um, well, no, no, but your book was quite different um, because that's, you know, all these books um, settled around the the marriages of Henry VIII. You know, they're all said in the court and it's basically the same story over and over. And that's the part that I was bored to tears with. But your book really, the court is very much, they're present, of course. I mean, the future of the state is part of the story. And in fact, the past is is an element in the story as well, but the what I particularly liked about the book is that you talk about ordinary Elizabethans, you know, merchants and artisans and housewives and doctors yeah. and pirates and um, was this too, fun yep. for you yeah. <laughs> as a historian to to take all of this detail that you've been researching and and. Yeah, I mean, in Half many ways, I, I often say with the history book, uh, the, 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 the novels, the, 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 the trick is not to, to, it's to unresearch in many ways, because you don't want to have the limitation of um, too keen an awareness of what Francis Walsingham said or Sir William Cecil said at one, one given point, because that will inhibit your freedom to make up the story as you want to tell a story about the past. I mean, there is, coming back to the accuracy element a bit, um, there is a clear distinction in everything I'm writing historically, fiction-wise, between the accuracy of the environment and the way that people did things, so much so that you wouldn't have meat cooked in Advent and things like that, um, and the complete liberties I take with uh, the political uh, key characters. So William Cecil and Francis Walsingham appear in the book, but they never said the things I've said. So um, the emphasis has got to be on representing society, uh, and that's what I try and do as accurately as possible. And the town I live in, in here, in, uh, in Morton Hampstead, in Dar- Dartmoor, in southwest England, is very interesting because size-wise, size in terms of population, it's hardly changed since uh, since about 1640. And I know an awful lot about its history at that period. And the people today here act as a sort of uh, laboratory for me. They don't know this, so don't tell anybody in Morton Hampstead. But... Um, all 1,700 of them are really a bit of a, a historical laboratory because I can see how communities function. I mean, we're 13 miles away from the nearest city. Here people get on and interact in ways that aren't that dissimilar from their earlier forebears. So <clears throat> when it came to the second book, uh, and this is only true of the second book, The Roots of Betrayal, quite a lot of the characters are people who I know from round here. The characters in the books most of them pirates, are based... <laughs> I don't know quite sure what that was. But uh, they're based on characters I know locally and I have watched them interact with each other. And therefore, there is this sort of sense of, yeah, I'm really interested in the, the, the ordinary person or, or the ordinary pirate, if there's such a thing, or the, the ordinary mum, basically, who's trying to make the, the household expenditure cover three children and, uh, uh, and whatever. I mean, we all have our challenges, right at the top of society, right at the bottom, and it's interesting to look at how people you know, get together uh, and, and meet those challenges. It doesn't really matter which class they are. It's all fascinating. Yeah, I agree it is. And I'm so glad you brought up the pirates because 
<laughs> I want to segue um, to me. one of the challenges of writing a historical series is to keep from writing the same book over and over. And so I noticed that in addition to the fact that you have one long story that goes across all three books, but <laughs> the second book is very different in the sense that a large part of it takes part at sea. Yeah. And... Um, I know you you mentioned again in the in the historical note that uh, Ra Karu, who is kind of the pirate king, is someone you met in a pub. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Ra, Ra Karu, he picks up on Ra Karu and likes him. I think really I will try something about him. He's a friend of mine and the, the, the actual chap. I went into um, uh, my local pub, so it was 200 yards away from where I live, uh, the White Horse. And uh, then I, I saw uh, my friend Andy standing in front of the bar. He's He's quite a lot shorter than me. He's, I think, about uh, five foot nine, five foot ten. Um, and he was standing there with a you know, chest out. And he does a lot of singing. Both of us we do a lot of music in the community. And he was uh, looked like he was about to sort of burst into song as he stood there. I just looked at the way he was looking. Uh, looked at the way he was standing, and there was something about his sort of way of standing that made me think of a pirate on a deck. And the name Raw Carew came to me later that same evening. Um, Carew, because it's a West Country surname, and uh, uh, I know a fair bit about the Carew family, and Raw as a Christian name, because I come across it as uh, the first name of Raw Clydes, a village blacksmith in Cornwall who had had a sideline as a, a, a physician, um, which really amounted to giving people milk and apples, but he, he was a local physician to people, and this, his name was Raw Clydes. And suddenly this name Raw Carew came, and Andy uh, standing there like a pirate, so Raw Carew was really born from that one moment of seeing him standing in the pub with a pint in his hand. And really the, the rest followed from that. What I found was very interesting is the, the characters that I stuck with him as part of this pirate crew. Because some of them were based on people I didn't know that well, who just had such strong characteristics that you wanted to bring out these characteristics as if they were timeless. Because you could imagine them in different times. And yet other people who I thought I'd be putting in just didn't fit in the past at all they they weren't uh strong uh, their characteristics weren't strong enough you could transplant them to the 16th century and make anything meaningful out of them so it was very interesting the way uh the, the characters grew there yeah but uh, going back to the plot thing is it's a it's very much a plot within a plot all three plots are very distinct from one another and they just have this one secret and the whole sense of loyalty revolving around the, that secret that, that strings them all together um, this brings us, I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation and we're winding it down now. So, uh, but I, the one thing I'd like to ask people towards the end is, uh, what would you like readers to take away from Sacred Treason and the sequels? I mean, there's that poem by, um, Robert Graves, isn't there? There's one story, one story only that prove worth the telling, uh, which is basically the only story worth telling is love. Well, I disagree. I think the, another story worth telling is loyalty. And so I would like people to take away from those three books, because I do think you get much more out of them if you read it all the way to the end. Um, and, and I do think the third book is the best of the three. Uh, I, th I would like people to think that most of our archetypes for storytelling are about love. 
But there is also a case for, for exactly looking at our loyalty. And loyalty not just in the, the um, as it occurs to you today, but as it could be in any other circumstances. Because society can change quite a lot. And I'm writing a book about change at the moment. Society changes really quite fast. So in other circumstances, loyalty could once again become extremely important to us. And also, I mean, you can look at ways in which loyalty is more important than you realize um, in, in, in modern life. Especially as you grow old and have a few more years under your belt, as it were, and you, you end up relying on people that much more. So it's the sense in which loyalty plays a central part in mankind's existence. That's what I want people to take away from it. Was there a passage that you wanted to read? I didn't really give you a chance earlier in the discussion, but if there is... Ooh, I- I, I know I probably, I mean, one of my favorite bits to look back at, uh, in fact, one of the only bits I actually look back at is the beginning of book three, uh, The Final Sacrament. But I'm not going to say that because it says something which I wouldn't ah. want people, <laughs> readers, readers of book one and two, not to know. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't read back through them. I, I, I'm very proud of having done them. And I, for, for a as you know, for a historian to go into to fiction is quite a, a, a dangerous thing in some ways. But I, I'm very pleased that I did, and it's given me a huge amount of insight into the philosophy of history, which I would never have got if I'd simply sort of stayed away from the subject. So um, in due course, I will return to, to writing fiction, and I will have learnt an awful lot from, from, from these three. But I don't go back over them and uh, uh, reread them, with the exception of this one passage, which I'm not going to mention. I see from, uh, you have two websites. One is, is the Ian Mortimer website and one is James Forrester. And I yep. saw on James Forrester's website that you are now retiring him or at least putting him on hiatus well, for a while. Yeah, he, he's going on a long leave. Um, there is a book I want to write as James Forrester. It will be a book, um, it, will, it will concern Shakespeare somewhere or other. Um, but it's, it's not the highest priority. Um, the, the Ian Mortimer books are getting much more noticed. I mean, it's very difficult to sell English history in a foreign language, but now the Time Traveler's Guides are being published in China, in Taiwan, in Japan, in Russia, and places in Germany. Um, it, it, because it's getting this uh, um, non-English language interest, I want to work with that a bit more because clearly I'm able to say things that communicate to readers uh, who aren't particularly interested in English history, maybe, but, um, but who want to know about this different approach to the past and how we can learn so much more about ourselves from studying, the, uh, studying history. So at the moment, the historical uh, uh, writing has to take um, um, the priority. There is one novel I really want to write soon. In fact, I will start writing it soon. But I'm going to write that under um, a variant on Ian Mortimer because no one's ever going to confuse it with... Um, um, uh, proving the past because it starts off with a character who sells their soul to the devil and lives for 600 years so no one's going to mistake that for me trying to prove the past and I quite like the idea um, in this book the, the, this novel I want to write the, the main character comes back at various times and you find from this medieval mindset what is changing around you so it actually is it running in tandem with a lot of my historical work anyway which is about the, the, the juxtapositions of society over time. Um, so I'm going to do that as some sort of variant on Ian Mortimer, maybe Ian J.F. Mortimer. I have the J.F. there for James Forrester in the middle of my name. Um, but I don't know at the moment exactly how that's going to go. Uh, I've got to get current book out of the way first. And you have a couple of historical projects as well. 
Well, the, the historical project at the moment is is really uh, the big one for me. It's uh, the book that I wanted to write for for years and years. I've been planning it for fourteen years now. Um, it's a book about change, and it asks one simple question: Which century of the last ten saw the most change? And as soon as you start thought, thinking about change, people often presume the twentieth century or the nineteenth century were the ones to, but they don't necessarily take into consideration what they don't know about the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, etc. And so I'm going through each century talking about the biggest changes in each of the social changes, this is, in each of the, the centuries and working out you know, what it is about change that why is change this constant? In fact, is it a constant? Uh, and does change play a bigger part in our lives over the centuries or a lesser part in our lives as more things become sort of set in stone and legally enshrined? So it's, um, for me, it's the, the, the biggest, most amb- it's an insanely ambitious project. I mean, writing the history of the Western world over um, 10 centuries in 100,000 words, which is effectively what the book is. Uh, and it, it requires an awful lot of unwriting and cutting out um, and revision. But uh, that, that's my big project at the moment. I also have another time traveller's guide to write one to Restoration Britain, and I've got to write a biography of uh, Richard Duke of York, um, the father of Richard III and Edward IV. Uh, so I've got a few books to, to, to be getting on with. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk with us today. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with James Forrester, also known as Ian Mortimer, the author of Sacred Treason, The Roots of Betrayal, and The Final Sacrament. You can find out more about him at www.jamesforrester.co.uk and www.ianmortimer.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-F-O-R-R-E-S-T-E-R, as one word, and... I-A-N-M-O-R-T-I-M-E-R as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books His Fic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at http blog.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. Goodbye until next month, when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction. Mm-hmm.